Welcome to the Powered by Age, Age-Friendly City Zoomcast, reality-style podcast. We are movers and shakers, shaking up the old notion of silent, helpless, invisible seniors. This is a new series of podcasts funded by the City of Vancouver and the 411 Senior Center Society. As PBA AFC ambassadors, we raise awareness, share our original stories and poems, inform, advocate, and involve seniors in discussing important social issues. In short, these podcasts will help us, you, in creating an age-friendly city for Vancouver today, tomorrow the world. You can hear us everywhere podcasts are heard. Hello and welcome to Powered by Age. This is the first Thursday of the year 2021 and I'm Charlotte Farrell, your host. We are just today talking about resilience and democracy and other things that may come up as our participants uh, come on. Right now, at the start, we have on our program, Neil, and let Neil introduce himself, then Leslie and Amanda. Hi, I'm Neil Ryan. I live in uh, Burnaby overlooking New Westminster, and um, I'm a poet, and uh, I used to pretend I was a businessman, and I'm, uh, I'm in love with writing. I write almost every day, and I wrote a poem yesterday. No, maybe it was Tuesday. I I can't remember. Too much happening in this world. So that's me. Leslie? I'm I'm a happy camper today. I turn it over to Leslie Hebert. Thanks. Yeah, I live in New Westminster. Um, I teach English online, and I'm also a writer. I write a whole variety of things, poetry, short stories, currently working on a memoir of a vacation in Japan, although I've actually taken a break from writing, and I've got a job doing a, a fascinating translation right now. Of It's for a woman who's writing a historical novel about the French resistance in World War II. And I'm translating testimonies from the French archives that are recordings of uh, testaments by spies that work for the French underground. Absolutely fascinating. Well, that sounds exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Amanda, Chef Amanda. Hi, everyone. Amanda here. Um, I live in the West End of Vancouver. And I work at a neighborhood house here in the hood, uh, cooking healthy, nutritious, and colorful meals for seniors and families in need. And that's it. Super happy to be participating in the first episode of this year. The end of last year was super hectic, and I missed quite a few um, meetings. But that's it. Glad to be here and thankful to participate with you guys. Hoping for some poetry from you today. Oh, great. Wonderful. <laughs> and I know as we go along, one of the things we're going to be doing during, during uh, this month is, well, exploring each other's ideas and opinions on things, but also different ways to use these uh, platforms uh, exploring ways that you can position cameras differently. So if we're doing a tabletop demonstration or something behind us, we'll be able to show it. And um, 
learning more nutritious tips, food tips from you. We all sort of uh, got our favorite ways that we are changing our diets, but you have some beautiful ways that you're incorporating more seasonal produce. So we'll be looking forward to hearing about that and getting ideas. Well, our two words for today are one is democracy and the other is re resilience. And I'm going to ask you your thoughts around those words in whichever order. Which one from uh, you would you rather start with thoughts on democracy or on resilience? Actually, they're both very interesting questions. I think resiliency maybe has more of a wider application, but democracy seems to be more pertinent right now. So I'm not sure which one we should start with, actually. What do you think, Neil? Well, we have uh, an unusual democratic society because we follow British parliamentary and it's it's really not democracy. It really isn't. A, we don't get to decide whether or not we buy new aircraft. We we follow what the boys in the back room behind Parliament decide is what they want. And for one thing, they're focused on economy. Uh, they want to make sure everybody's got enough got enough money to buy things. And they don't look after the forest. They don't look after our water. They don't look after uh, what what I want them to look after. So I really uh, I, I'm really loath to say that we live in a free society because we we don't. Uh, and uh, I happened to be involved when Trudeau was running for his third or fourth round as as prime minister. I liked him. I liked him. And I was helping his parliamentary secretary, whose name at this very moment I can't remember, but I remember him saying is, is that we don't care about full economy. We All we care about is that at least 95% of the people that want to work can get a job. And... And it, it, the focus of the parliament was, as I said, the backroom boys where the cigars are. Uh, you know, I don't know how you get rid of that vested uh, interest. And so uh, we do the best we can with what we got. I think it was Churchill said, considering all the alternatives, this is the least worst that we can offer you. And even British uh, Britain is even worse worse than us because they got the House of Lords and and um, that's a bloodline style of 
democracy and so but we do the best we can and and uh, i think canada should drop the queen i think we should become a republic and uh, and have the excitement that they had in the us government yesterday good god I'm, heaven I'm, forbid i'm, I'm joking <laughs> Uh, no, I think it, it comes down to basically to define what is democracy. I mean, is, is it everybody can, every individual can do absolutely everything they want and everybody's absolutely free? And then at what point does it become uh, the, the, you know, your freedom? Your freedom is then going to impinge perhaps on another person's freedom. So, you know, how do you control that, you know? Uh, there has there have to be limits on freedom, um, and I appreciate what you're saying about the back room boys, Neil. And I, I think that happens everywhere. But um, yeah, really, um, if we didn't have an upper house, what would be different? Um, I disagree with you about a constitutional monarchy. I think uh, a constitutional monarchy is actually a much stabler form of government than a republic. Uh, for various philosophical reasons. But, um, yeah, I don't think either one... Uh, they do say that actually in ancient Greece, uh, democracy was a lottery, that um, all the... And it was only male landholders that were involved in the government, but uh, apparently they all put their name in a hat every so often and then just drew a few names, and the names that were picked were the ones that would be the government for the next couple of years or whatever. Which is a whole another system of democracy, right? Yeah. So what is it? What is democracy? Well, I, I think democracy kind of exists in people's heads because um, my father is a veteran of four wars. And yesterday I was thinking, you know, there were so many people, so many people who died, lost limbs, lost their way of living, being sent abroad to enforce democracy in another place when there's so many holes in the concept of democracy in America. And so between my two hats of being a tax-paying <laughs> person here in Canada and a tax-paying <laughs> uh, loyal person of, of America, I'm appalled by the weight and might, because a lot of times there's this picture of the weight and might of the United States, but also this image of it being, how did it be, how did the, even the notion that it's the bed, of, the bedrock of democracy, is it the bedrock because of the mountains of weapons we have, or is it the bedrock because it adheres to some things that we say we hold these truths to be self-evident, but it is so self-evident that those truths are not held for everyone. So watching uh, the horror of the Capitol being scaled by people, people smashing the windows, and the people inside then crying about our democracy, but it, it was in tatters. A lot of things were already not self-evident and you know some uh, a person heading the country was allowed to just spew things that were undemocratic for for years and so it's like a huge illusion that's burst where i think we have to really re-examine uh, 
you know, what is this democracy all about anyhow? And how could we of the countries that particularly France, England, <laughs> uh, Canada, the United States that, that boast of being, you know, great democracies, while atrocities are done with our, our money or in, in our name, that it just brings to a head the need to really think about, you know, what does democracy mean? Yeah, and I think um, it's very obvious from what's been happening over the past four years that there are huge swaths of people in the U.S. and probably many other modern countries as well that feel disenfranchised, that the system is not representing them. So um, I think one of the questions is how to fix the system. Um, and uh, where am I going with this? Um that can the system evolve? I mean, one of the strengths is the rule of law. And, and this is what, you know, everybody talks about in, you know, a modern, stable, democratic country, you know, is that we go by the rule of law, not by, you know, we don't follow any one personality, right? Right. Um, so that the law is more important than the people that are, that we voted in to uphold that law. Um but it's very fragile so it's and it's become obvious you know it became obvious yesterday that you know such a system can be very fragile and that people have to work to protect it and when you have uh, you know low you know low involvement low voter turnout people don't seem to care right because they don't see the relevance to them personally um and another question is, can a country be too big? You know, I mean, you look at the system in the United States, it's basically 50 countries, right, held together by a constitution. And there are so many differences between all the individual states that, yeah, it's um, how do you hold this together? How do you, how do you guarantee that this system's going to last, right? And there are lots of vested interests. I think that's also the problem. Lots of people are disenfranchised because of the oligarchy, you know, because of uh, who Neil calls the backroom boys that basically are controlling things behind the scenes. Yeah, I think there's a clash of rights because it, the largest voter turnout in American history occurred in 2020. But something that people didn't really think about that, you know, with the 70, 70 million people who really felt that something was being taken from them, the giving rights, assuring rights, or other people protesting, something was being taken away from them. And then another 70 million who said, we never got our piece of the pie, our full whole. So the problem definitely needs to be conversations. I think in each of these places and, you know, each of the democracies that, they, that something isn't working in the area of people being able to sit down and have a conversation about uh, the difference in the ways that they interpret a word like happiness. You know, Canadian Constitution with the word happiness, I challenged, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, children's aid. Uh, child Protective Services around the constitutional right to happiness because uh, 
my children did something terrible. I did give them a spanking. Most definitely, I, I didn't break, break their flesh or anything. But this, you know, social worker or child, child agents came to my house and she said, the society, it is the opinion of the society that children should never have corporal punishment. And I thought, but, you know, you take people's children away, you give them a brutal separation from their parents, you send children from the city to people in the country, rural areas, and awful things happen to a lot of children that are in foster mm. care. So, you know, I, I chal- they, they gave me this list of things that I had to say that I would do, and I agreed with all of them, except I challenged them on the constitutional right to, to happiness because it was not a happy and they they backed down they left me alone <laughs> but I thought constitution knowing the constitution or even having discussions because I think a lot of people aren't able to equally have their rights protected or get the juice out of a, <laughs> a democratic society because the laws either they don't know the laws or the laws aren't applied equally Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the American Constitution actually is the pursuit of happiness, right? You know, it doesn't actually go and say that everybody has a right to happiness. No, when it was originally happiness. written, it, 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 was, it said that, you know, black people were three quarters or four, weren't whole people. Mm-hmm. And so we weren't entitled to, you know, rights. The 13th uh, Amendment to the Constitution, there's been a lot of challenges. Uh, and... My, People who challenge this notion that it was such a democratic society and at the same time it could hold, allow people who, to still own people and still mm-hmm. not give their rights to people and, and have it built into the Constitution. So right now all these constitutional challenges, it makes a mockery of some of the things that the founding fathers, you know, hear people as I talk about, our founding fathers, they treasured these and they mapped a path. I said, but the founding fathers mapped a path to hell as well. So it it really brings to uh, to the top a need to have a lot of the cons- uh, discussions and review of uh, a constitution that's held as the holy grail or mark of democracy for a society. Mm. Yeah, and of course, Canada doesn't have uh, anything enshrined that we would consider the right to happiness. You know, it's much more of a legal document. It's not really so philosophical. Um, but if you look at the American Constitution, you know, it's was it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, but you could say that, you know, by not having national health care, you're denying people the right to life. Right. Right, right because I think in Canada has a right to, under the UN Mandela. The right to health is mm. in Canada's Mandela. It is not in the U.S. Mandela. And you would think that would be a benchmark of a, a big part of a democratic society that mm. everybody has a right to health. That insurance companies and access having you know insurance would be the difference between whether you could be treated or not be treated. Mm. But here, you know, some of the issues that still exist with the indigenous people. We start. Mm-hmm. We didn't start this program today giving uh, honor to the land rights, you know, that we um, 
acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Sedawatu's mm. people. Uh, but we say that. It's just said so much like a rote thing, but the point of in a democratic society, when do we get to giving either people their lands or, or paying um, the equivalent of what the land is worth? Mm -hmm. What uh, what I remember of the CNN was the black announcer that said those white people that 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 uh, assaulted the parliament if they had been black hundreds would be dead mm -hmm. everybody would have been arrested and they'd be lined up the buses would be lined up to take them to prison and there wasn't any such thing and no i mean for hours they were just standing and waving for the people to go all of those people should have been held for um the, the theft, when they showed the congressional offices, people's stuff was, was scattered all over mm. the place. They broke windows and they let the people go without holding them to where the videos of them could be associated with specific things. They're saying, oh, they'll look at the film and they'll call the people back. They don't even know, you know, exactly where people live. They might know where their social media comes from. But truly with the uh uh, protest, Black Lives Matter protests, they came out with flash bombs and sticks and canes hitting unarmed demonstrators. You know, they showed what places where there were riots, but in the places where there were no riots, where there were just unarmed peaceful demonstrators, those people got sprayed, they got hit, they got tased. Uh, other marches on Washington, you know, I attended some marches on Washington and Three or four, six blocks back, they started to gas people on the war in the marches against Vietnam War and marches for black studies. They, they sprayed gas students on college campuses. So it's a big, big uh, difference in the way yeah, thousands I, of people were allowed to come into the Capitol. I have a question. Does anybody have an answer? I have a question. And that is, is that it seems to me that the Republican Party in the United States is a criminal party. Uh, Richard Nixon, uh, uh, his, his uh, vice president, or, or Spiro Agnew, uh, I don't know what the hell he was in his C4, and, uh, and uh, the Bushes, uh, you know, uh, the what is wrong with the Republican Party that that a hundred senators signed up to dispute the election? I mean, it seems like it's a it's a it's a gang of gangsters. It really, really does. And uh, I would probably be ashamed if I knew my brother's vote. He was an American citizen, and I think he probably voted for Trump because he wouldn't. He told me quite point blank, "I'd never, I'd never vote for a black man, and I'd never vote for a woman." Hmm. Uh, my uh, my redneck brother, that's now deceased, uh, but anyway. Yeah, well, I think 
there's something about that experience of having so much evil, so many things, nasty things have been said that the that the party leaders could have checked the leader of the government on, and they didn't. So then when this nastiness boiled over and had them compelled to be on the floor, there were some people who relented and, and you know, and, and said now they're alarmed that this is what can happen when you just allow people who are greedy, people who hate other people, people who don't want to see any other people get any of the things that are described as rights in a democratic society. I mean, there are people that are really angry that uh, a woman, a Jew, a black man, that these people that were recently elected onto the Senate, they're angry that that could happen. And they brought the, the Confederate fag in, but a lot of permission, a big difference when they talk about white privilege, that group... I didn't see any black people. I mean, if that I, I didn't, but they were alarmed, allowed to storm these people's presence, the place where laws are made, the place what they call hallowed halls. And I think someone were then horrified by by our being silent and by our letting these people uh, get away with crimes all across the country. There's been such a difference in the way mm. that. Poor people, black people, people of color have been treated with the law and the crimes that those people should have been charged with yesterday. It's, it's just like uh, when people are potty training or house training a, 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 a puppy and they rub its nose in its mess. Yesterday was like people's nose being rubbed in the mess that they are allowed to, to, to grow. Well, there was even, uh, I even heard on the news last night, uh, some of the newscasters thought that uh, some of the police that had been guarding uh, the entrance actually let those people in. Yeah, there were people on social media that showed people letting people in, them waving people in. Mm. I mean, there's going to be a huge investigation because the level of collaboration that would have had to occur for the Capitol Police to let people in, that that. Well, I'm sure it's going to spur a huge amount of investigation. And then how could that, how could the people that were in charge let that happen? Well, I am amazed. I mean, uh, they've been predicting for weeks that this could have been a tinderbox. Mm. And it just, there just didn't seem to be that many people guarding the entrance, you know? No. It was, it seemed to be very under secured. Yeah, even the, the 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 plaza. They were building that plaza. I mean, the, the plaza that the inauguration is supposed to be held in in mm. less than two weeks. They should have had a guard around it, just securing it so that people couldn't be planting bombs or you know mm -hmm. doing any type of damage to it. So, uh, more than one senator has said that they're going to make it their business to investigate what happened and to see that that could never happen again. But I think fundamentally, alarm should have been raised around protecting people and protecting their rights when, with the churches that were bombed. Churches were bombed, black churches, uh, Jewish worship centers, uh, Islamic centers, and they just go on, you know, the band played on, it's business as usual, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. record it without saying, hey, you know, we've got a problem over here. Hey, we need to really be protecting uh, people equally. So, 
the slime. It's like somebody that makes, you know, in the movies like it, <laughs> in those mm-hmm. movies where somebody makes something and nobody's paying attention to it and it just starts to ooze along and just eat up everything, destroying everything in its path. And it, it's indicative of the climate. There's so many things that, you know, whether it's the Republican Party that was blocking everything that President Obama tried mm-hmm. to put forth, this party allowing its head to block all of the environmental things and say climate change was uh, a joke that it, this oozing what's happened there to me is like a picture of what's happened in every area that people would carry about in a, a you know a holistic or in a, a democratic society yeah looking at the big picture um, looking at politics in the US it's very binary there are only two parties there is no other viable party whatsoever, right? Um, when I look at other countries, you know, Canada has like 20 different political parties and each party represents a different point of view. Now, when I look at the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, the Republican Party seems to be, there's at least two factions in there, right? There's right. the um, sort of the business party model, um, I say like Mitt Romney is a very ethical, upstanding person that probably supports business and personal freedoms. And then you've got the ultra right wing. We've got more and more radical over the last four years. And then look at the Democrats and you've got the same thing. It's basically, it's a combination of liberals and socialists together, right? Which they're they're actually quite different, but they're united in the same party. So I see there should be at least four parties, if not more, to represent other points of view. And I think that would bring more balance. Right now, it's either it's black and white, it's us and them, it's binary thinking. There's no, um, the national consciousness has no sense of shades of gray. Right. Well, you know, there was a point where even the principle of working across the aisles, when Lyndon, I was horrified when after uh, President Kennedy was killed that uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson was coming into office because I thought he's a Southerner and he's going to kill the Civil Rights Bill. But he knew how to work across the aisles and working Mm -hmm. across the aisles and pressing buttons with people. He got the Civil Rights Bill you know, through a civil rights act through. And so there have been other times when people, you know, worked across the aisles, but then it's just in these more, uh, but the the, power, the, the the system itself should allow people from those other parties to keep their, their votes, keep their candidates. Like here where you've got uh, people keep the, keep a percentage of um, the number of, of, of votes they had there it's either all democrat or republican so the green party didn't get to keep any of its votes any of those other parties didn't get to keep any of its votes so i think there is a need for a discussion in serious national conferences or seriously talk about you know having a system more than just a two-party system so that there was other interests uh, aren't just considered radicals of people that there could be a green party and that's their main thing Mm. is to get pieces of legislation passed around the environment Uh, there is a there is a history of of multiple parties in the u.s Mm. but you've got to go back quite a ways but there there was there is a a history of uh, multiple parties in the u.s 
it hasn't been since George Washington uh, set set the two parties up. No, it's been they've they've had a few machinations along the way. But but I I would like to get back to the your original question of, of democracy. Is there anywhere in the world where there is like 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 the Greek originally started with is that if you're a if you're a Greek citizen and born if you're a Greek male born in Greece you are allowed to vote. You know I don't know who had the conversation, but the question of is this country too big because. I'm not a Quebecer. I lived in Quebec for a while, but I'm not a Quebec. I'm not. I don't espouse the the the, the style of law that there is in Quebec. Uh, it should be a separate country. I totally agree with the idea of the of the separatists who say we're not uh, uh, Canadian. You know, we're Quebecois. But I think just as, uh, you know, there was a war on the, the Civil War, partly around uh, slavery, but also around money, that when Quebec was going to leave, the issue was, we want your money. <laughs> it wasn't mm -hmm. so much around the heritage, but it was really fundamentally that we need your money as part of the Federation. And I think that's, uh, you know, that... that if there were places, how can we imagine, how could people in different places have conversations that would have allow rethinking what democracy means for that, that society or that country? Uh, the issue of size, I think the two countries that I think of that seem to be the most democratic are Iceland and New Zealand. And they're both very small and quite... Um, not, you know, not diverse, you know, they're sort of, um, you know, New Zealand may be a little more diverse, but Iceland is definitely just one population, right? I've been, uh, I think to, both. I've been to both, and I tell you, I love both of them. Mm -hmm. But would they welcome in... <laughs> I mean, I some things know. because they're small, then yeah. it's easy for everybody to be on one accord. But large areas like the country, look at how big Canada is and the land area that Canada mm -hmm. has and then the land mass of the United States. What can people do now with these land masses? You know, because even talking about breaking, you know, Canada up in, where different provinces have their own rights or, or essentially their own countries, or same thing for the United States. That's that's an, an act of war to even speak of such things as mm -hmm. sedition. You could go mm -hmm. to jail or prison. <laughs> so, I mean, what are ways, I'm thinking some of the things that happened within government were because of things people wrote. So to what extent do you think writers and poets influence the conversations that people might have around democracy? Well, they can uh, get into, you know, they can get into the consciousness, right? They can basically take the temperature of the time you know, sense current sense patterns, perhaps make predictions for the future. 
Um, I don't know. Um, a lot, you know, there aren't that many creative writers that have been actually involved politically, but I think Robbie Burns um, was very much uh, a Democrat. You know, he, he wrote A Man's a Man for All That, which was, you know, in the days when there was uh, a really rigid class system. I mean, this is in the 18th century. And, uh, you know, he's saying, you know, a man is not, uh, should not be judged by his birth. He should be judged by his character. And I think he's one of the first people to, to raise that idea. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think of reading Oliver Twist, I think we read Oliver Twist in the seventh grade or so, but mm-hmm. thinking, it made me really, really think a lot about children, not just the children in England of that time, but it made me think of, you know, children in my neighborhood or children. And, and I think that some of the things that people write influences them in what they decide that they would might study for their career, what they decide they want to be. Because possibly a lot of the people that read those books about in, you know in, in inequity wanted a work to try and have policies where there wouldn't be people that could have rooming houses full of children and get money for the children, but mm-hmm. feed the children nine day old porridge. Um, I mean, so many things in that book were so colorful. I still, you know, they still fuel me now uh, in thinking about, you know, injustice of children's rights. So I think that that's one, we, we now have this huge mess. <laughs> and from that mess, it's like the elephant, you know, what bites. But it seems that um, I interviewed um, a person who talked about the power of the writer um, and that it's always been writers and poets who were able to say things that got under people's skin and if nothing else, generated discussion. Last night when those people, all the different uh, senators or, or uh, House members who were recanting, particularly the ones who had planned to give an objection, they were quoting people. Lots of them were quoting mm-hmm. philosophies of other people and uh, thinking, wow, it, it, it at least makes people uh, think that this isn't socialist. Because some of the things that the conservatives accuse uh people of being socialist. These were old ideas or things that you found that former statesmen or former leaders had talked about. So how do you think, you know, as a, as a writer, how might we prod different kinds of conversations? Well, I think one thing that writers do is hold up a mirror. And I think, you know, you talked about Dickens. I think that's one thing that Dickens did. He described his society, but he described parts of that society that most people in a position of authority tended to turn a blind eye to or ignore. Hmm. So, um, you know, they didn't care about the kids in the workhouses. Um, They blamed the poor for, for being poor, you know, because they were lazy and, you know, irresponsible. And a lot of that thinking still goes on today. You know, a lot of people still blame the poor for their poverty. Um, And I don't think a lot's changed since Dickens' times. And, you know, a lot of things that we read in Dickens, still happening, right? 
Yeah, I think with foster care, I mean, some things have happened at the lower level, but when you hear the stories of people that have been in foster care talking about, you know, eight, nine, why did you run away? Uh, now mm -hmm. that there's an epidemic of um, overdoses, epidemic of people dying from overdose, mm -hmm. a lot of them say, you know, that they were kids evicted. I mean, they grew out of the system and then growing out of the system, mm -hmm. there wasn't anything to catch them and they mm -hmm. were lonely or, you know, that they just began to, 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 use substances and you know they are were invisible so now the people that are calling on us to pay more attention to that this epidemic of of uh, addiction has killed more people than than covid in the downtown vancouver areas or across bc um their stories their oral stories i think are important but uh i don't know if we're getting as much writing that people are writing to the extent that kind of pierces people's hearts and, and makes them really motivated mm -hmm. to make a change i don't know if we're getting as much of that as has occurred in other decades a lot of what passes for entertainment these days basically supports the existing system um a lot of uh formulaic scripts you know, um, I'm just thinking typically, you know, the Hallmark Christmas movie, right? Yes. Uh, you know, um, they support what is. They don't advocate for change in any way. They don't even show us any problems. They're all happy movies, right? And I think people want to be entertained. People don't want to see the dark side. People are in so much pain that they can't see what's going on you have to love yourself in order to see the pain of humanity because we've all been wounded all of us well it, now what is an interesting thing is that people were criticizing millennials and saying millennials weren't involved. They were just in Gen X that they were so consumed with things because they had had parents who either weren't able to give them things or because they were moving up the ladder had less time. So they gave, gave, gave stuff. But now we have the uh, centur, whatever the name is <laughs> for the next group, this group that's 14, 15 now and leading uh climate change conferences, mm -hmm. calling mm -hmm. people to order. I mean, they totally in a day didn't ask for a permit, didn't agree to the terms of permit. They said, we're gathering. And in a day, they had to change the traffic routes in downtown, not only, you know, Vancouver, but other cities around the world because they presented themselves and they presented their uh, disgust and their, de their demand that people change things so that they will have a world to live in, that they won't end up, you know, with with uh, air they can't breathe or their cities being submerged in water. So I think there's something about maybe if you're not in the written testimony, but the 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 young lady who first started to appeal, it was through people hearing, you know, the social media kids hearing about uh, the cry and deciding that that applied to them and self-appointing themselves to take action. Yeah, so maybe writers these days uh, write blogs instead of novels. 
different medium, perhaps? It's it's interesting because they say people are people are reading more than ever before. Yeah, mm-hmm. especially in the young writers market, they had to hire new people um, in um, publication centers to ha- to handle the volume of demand for books, the hunger oh. for books, uh, and then Audible, Amazon always owned Audible, but first they were just you know, recordings of books that people have written, the translation of the books over a transformation over mm-hmm. to, to written form. But now podcasts, people, a lot of people are listening to podcasts. People are feeling their right to put their voice out, to not wait until somebody dings them on the head and says, ah, you can <laughs> you can have a sound bite on our system. Uh, thousands of podcasts and podcasts are, are growing in uh, uh, revenue where people have subscriptions, people are paying for the subscription because people are increasingly wanting to have their voice heard. Mm. So that there's so many podcasts. Now Audible has got, they've shifted their ad and they've said the books are the stories you'd like to hear so that people don't have to think about, oh, I'm going to listen to somebody read a whole book that people, there's a hunger for these stories. So I think there's hope in the hunger, and that's why I'm pressing people <laughs> and trying to elicit their stories because there are a lot of stories that people have, like Neil's story of, of growing up uh, in uh, a mining town. Who would think that somebody could have that as their past and yet be such a compassionate writer and not say, oh, the heck with children. I didn't have a nice childhood. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about that? About that, that right now is the time for really eliciting stories, telling stories, getting stories out so that at whatever point they hit the heart of the consciousness of, of the mind that, you know, that they're there. I think it's interesting and very encouraging what you said about the fact that people are reading more these days. Um, and I think this upcoming generation is much more aware of uh, particularly environmental issues because they're the ones that are going to have to deal with it. You know, they're dealing with our mess, basically. And I think, you know, if there is more reading, if there is more dialogue, and, you know, everybody talks about the pros and cons of social media that, you know, it has, you know, it has its bad points, but it's also brought a lot of people together. And I think it's created a lot of awareness of things that people weren't aware of before. So, yeah, I think there's actually a lot of really positive things happening right now. Taking that idea, uh, Leslie, a little bit further, and that is is that we are evolving. We are in in the evolution of humanity to a level of awareness that... You know, it's like I have forgiven my father for his alcoholism because what was available for him was so so far from what's available to me to learn mm-hmm. about about my own uh, chemical addiction in my head that says that it the chemical addiction in my head demands that I experience shame. That's because that was my three-year-old how learned how to cope with the world. But my father had experiences that he never learned to cope with 
So he found his alternative was to be in a bottle. I, I choose to learn to love myself because that's how peace, that's how we're evolving. I mean, uh, I look at some of my poetry and, 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 and uh, one line from a poem called Don't Look Away is, 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 I crave love that I cannot, will not allow. I don't trust love for it's only pain when it leaves and it always leaves and it always hurts. Mm. We are wounded. We're a wounded species. I had a conversation with a guy while I waited for Michelle earlier today, and he said, you know, I prefer to think of we are humankind. We're not black kind, white kind, the upper kind. We're humankind. And humanity evolved from... 50 million people died in a war, two wars, each, each one. First one, 40 million people were murdered, and the second one, 50 million people were murdered. And that's not to mention uh, uh, Stalin and Mao, each of whom had millions of people killed. And that's what we're, 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 survive, we're evolving from. And so... Our humanity is beginning to emerge, and I think it's. I think that's, you know, and and we needed to have Trump. We needed to have him to show the boil that's that that's that's on American society. Because I've done research in 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 into products in every state in the United States. I've done, and and I know the differences between what the guy in Georgia would respond to and the guy in San Francisco, totally, totally different response to the same question. And so uh, I can only say that 2021 is the beginning of the next cycle. And I hope more people come out and learn to love. And that's what my book is about is that I and I know your own teachings, Leslie, because you're such a good poet, poetess, poetess, <laughs> whatever the hell you oh, uh, We use non-sexist uh, non language these days. Ne never mind. No, I think this brings us back to uh, Charlotte's other word for today, which was resilience. And we haven't spent any time on that. But I think where there's hope, there's resilience. You know, as long as we think that we can evolve, we can do better, that we can improve, yeah. right? We can evolve. Mm -hmm. Two people that have written a lot on resilience. In fact, I thought uh, uh, Judith was going to be on today because she was sending me all of these uh, things that are Rick Hansen, who's a psychologist and a that both a student but as well as a, a listener of conversations around heart and mind and uh, dr stephen porges that he's written on uh, the strengths understanding the strengths that it's our body how we feel safe within a society is when we identify uh areas of ourselves we don't often think we if, if we most conversations go on are you fat? 
<laughs> are you are you doing enough steps? Uh, how's your teeth? How's your vision? These parts, but the inner parts. They're saying we really need to spend time with the inner parts, feeling how our heart is, feeling how our feelings are, because that lack of discussion around our feelings. We feel sad. We feel happy. What makes us feel sad? What makes us feel happy? That that's the thing that gives us our resilience, where we can reflect. Like a, a lot of in each of our poems, we have some places where we reflect on things uh, that were transitions in life, or like when you talk about it's only a dollar, you're reflecting on something that gets at the inner, that 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 chocolate core at the inside of a tootsie roll. <laughs> that that's the thing, the area of where we need to spend more work on looking at our inner workings. Uh, and that's where I think that you know writing is crucial to this you know it's about transformation right mm -hmm. the best works the best novels the best movies the best poems are about transformation and they help other people to transform i think and that's the, that's my objective is to keep keep trans transforming myself and in by doing so i become a demonstration of how to be And that switching the point of locus, because in democracy, even in a democratic society, we've given over to a lot of other people our things for our animals working, you know, and instead of really thinking about how do I think about things. I interviewed some college students at Simon Fraser, and I was asking them, what do they think about the issues of the election? And they said, I don't get involved in politics. And I thought, that has nothing to do with thinking about the kind of world that you want, mm -hmm. thinking and scratching. And that is kind of a place where we have opportunity to redirect people of asking, what do you think about that? Or if something is really angry that you can rage on paper, instead of going mm -hmm. and breaking glass, you can get on a piece of paper and you can really yeah. write, scream, tear up something, and then you can burn the paper or turn it. But it's like... Having some ways, I think that that's one of the, the, the things that we have that we could infect other people with is getting stuff out, getting the feelings mm -hmm. out. And pretty soon you you may not, uh, this uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Dr. Uh, Porger said, it's not around winning the Nobel Peace Prize. It's that you get to stuff, you can get to points where you know where you really are because as long as we're shifting along and we don't know people say i don't know how i feel about that i i'm not sure about that that part of our journey is to get inside and see you know how do we feel about different things how do we feel about standing six feet apart <laughs> you know <laughs> questioning did we need to be 10 feet apart or would it work at three you know that Part of democracy is being able to ask questions that further have progress or further, you know, what's my resistance? Why don't I want to wear a mask? Why am I willing to go down and argue with somebody at a store about having a mask? What's up with me? And I, I think that that's kind of what we as speakers, writers, or teachers can probe people to ask within themselves get to why do you think that or why how do you really feel because that's what they're saying resilience our resilience is on um, really having these places where we know within our body 
how we feel about things. I think it's very sad that, you know, these young people that are at university, I mean, these are the future leaders of society, right? That they don't want to get involved in politics. And I don't know if it's because politics has become so divisive uh, because I remember my parents would say, never talk about religion or politics. Right. right? <laughs> but at the same point, they did have opinions. <laughs> right. Yeah, yes. <laughs> they just didn't feel it was proper to share them in some instances. Well, I hope that the conversation that we have had today emanates out into the world and lets people think about how they feel about this or how they feel about that because uh, I'm learning more and more it's our feelings that drive our actions it's not our actions that drive our feelings mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I have to go I, I've, uh, it's, uh, it's gone two o'clock and I've got things that I must look after so love you both well, wait, we're all going to go, so <laughs> if you got to go, you got to go. <laughs> but just imagine the places we go and the things we will see as we have this um, podcasting, talking time, and eliciting. I think each of us in, in, in writing and speaking that we are eliciters of stories and prodders of helping people get to know what they feel and uh, civilly, in a civil way, you know, discuss it. Yes, know. yes, yes. So thank Love you. Both. I gotta, I'm going to hang up now. Thank you yes. very much for today. I'll see you hopefully all, uh, Leslie, I hope we see you on Saturday at the poet on. Uh, Saturday is a bit of a problem for me because um, I do have classes on Saturday, so I have a time conflict most Saturdays. Well, this Saturday, I'm doing a 24-hour uh, short story contest. Of the, oh, great. The, so, but I'm going to take out, t set aside some time to read a poem or two. So, mm. but, uh, but I got from 9 o'clock Saturday morning till 9 o'clock Sunday morning to write an 800-word story of of the topic that she will send me at nine o'clock on Saturday morning. So uh, well, you did very well with the last one. Yes, <laughs> yes, I did. I did. Thank you very much. Thanks. Well, thank you all. I'll see you again soon. Thank you, Charlotte. Okay. Well, bye bye. Now. Okay. Bye bye. Ready, set, go. <laughs> <laughs>